This is the Titanic Discovery, Professor Robert Ballard. It's on YouTube. I'm uh, recording it, and I'm going to make some statements while I'm recording it because this is an hour long, so I, I, can, I don't have any uh, more time to uh, use. So, um, I already recorded it once and it got deleted off this app. So I have to do the whole thing over again. For all of us. For um, further ado, please join me in welcoming Bob Ballard. working can you hear okay there we go uh well it's great to be here and uh i am comfortable on a basketball court actually i played college basketball so it's nice to to be here and try to score the winning goal but anyway uh, to be here and what score like the winning sort of goal walk you through our journey in the exploration of the titanic Not funny. Sort of past present and some thoughts you figure about titanic the was a crime scene now my journey to the titanic murder. came in a very different way i First place, I was born in Wichita, Kansas, where all oceanographers come from, so. Uh, but shortly after being born in Wichita, our house was blown by a tornado, not to, to uh, Oz, but to uh, San Diego. My father was a test flight engineer during the war, and I grew up in San Diego. And so his house wasn't blown line. by a tornado. My He's passion was to be Captain Nemo. Being a, a be. sarcastic. And my parents actually worked with me on that passion. Uh, but that certainly, because of Captain Nemo had a submarine, it was a, it was a wonderful series of coincidences that as an Army intelligence officer uh, during Vietnam, I ended up in the United States Navy. Still don't know how that happened. CIA, that's how it happened. And I was assigned to this deep diving submarine at Woods Hole up the street in Massachusetts. And for 30 years, uh, that was where I conducted my explorations. And... Going down to the bottom of the ocean, I, 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 I'm, my background, as, all, as you know, or maybe you don't know, is I got my PhD. Let's see if we got this thing going here. Mike Aquino was oh, our Army intelligence My PhD officer. I got here he at the Graduate School the of Oceanography at URI, so I'm a RAM, I want you to know. In and, uh, California, San Francisco. And, and so being, a, being a, 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 my degree was in marine geology. I had a passion for exploring the bottom of the ocean. And to do that, the best way to do that was to climb inside this little deep diving submarine and go to the bottom of the ocean. And I did it for over uh, uh, two and a half decades. I made hundreds and hundreds of dives going down in this submarine to explore the bottom of the ocean. The frustration I had uh, in the process hundreds was and hundreds. to get in a submarine, the average depth of the ocean is 12,000 uh, 50% of the world's oceans is deeper than 12,000 feet, but just going to the, the average depth, and that's ex exactly where the Titanic was. It sits at the average depth. So to get down to the Titanic in a deep diving submarine took you two and a half hours in the morning to get to work and two and a half hours in the afternoon to get home. So I had a five hour commute to work every day at the office. 
And my average bottom time was just about three hours, and the average distance I traveled in that day of exploration was one nautical mile. So very frustrating, because I spend more time going in the vertical than in the horizontal. And so I began to dream, and I actually published this cartoon in the 1981 issue of National Geographic magazine. And it was about a whole new way of exploring. We call it telepresence. The, to, to, instead of sending your physical body to the ocean, which is fragile and, and must be protected by a pressure housing, we wanted to literally have an out-of-body experience. And that is to send is our spirit. Cult. Our spirit has no a mass. It can travel cult. at the speed of light, they and it's indestructible. In fact, when I look at my body and I look at my hand, I don't think of that as me. I think of it as an amazing piece of machinery, but I think that my spirit is the important part. And so the whole idea of this technology was to literally leave my body. And in fact, the, the final example of that would be what we just saw in Jim Cameron's movie, Avatar, when the person left his physical body and went into a Navia's body. Jim Cameron and I, is I'm assuming a, a lot of you uh, saw the movie Avatar, because to me it's writer. a very futuristic look at where I see the technology taking us. And if you remember, the person uh, was transported into this new body. And you may the remember founder the first of the Mormon thing the church did is also a sci-fi writer. When he found himself inside Anavia's body was to get up and run out the room. And the reason he got up and ran out of the room is because in his human body, his legs didn't work. But in the Anavia's body, he had legs. He didn't care that he was nine feet tall and green. He could run. And this is really where we're talking about. So what we're doing here at, at, at URI and down at the Graduate School of Oceanography is not only pioneering the founder, exploration uh, me, of the, the ocean, but really uh, pioneering the Mormon a Church fundamentally was last new paradigm in how humans are going to be acting. Like Captain Smith a, a, a young, on the uh, Titanic? And, and, and a young daughter who are, you know, live in the cloud. And my son's girlfriend uh, presently is in India doing an advanced course in yoga or something. And I go into his the founder room, of the, and his laptop science was up, technology, and his girlfriend on the laptop, the Church of and, and, and she's got her laptop up. And they weren't even talking to one another. They were going about doing their own thing in their room, but then they would periodically come They're all in it together. And then they would go back to what they were doing. And I asked my son, you know, I said, hi, Lara, that's his girlfriend. I said, Ben, can you give me the latitude and longitude of where you are right now? He said, Dad, I'm in the cloud. It has no latitude and longitude. Now, those children look like us, but they're really not us. Okay. They're aliens, and they are the generation that are living in the cloud. And that's what this technology is really all about. It's about living in the cloud. And we began to develop this technology, and, and this became the modern version of the design. This was the design where I began the development of this technology. But the concept behind it was instead of sending my body to the bottom of the ocean, I'd send my spirit. And that would become my Navia, an underwater version of an exoskeleton. That would become me. Total science. And when I'm operating Hercules, I actually think I'm in Hercules. So this was the design paradigm. And we began to develop this whole new way of developing our exploration because we, the beauty of this technology is once you put the vehicle down, once you put your Navia down, your exoskeleton down, you had no reason to bring it up because you could move spirits in and out of it at the speed of light through the fiber optic cable.
So all of a sudden, instead of three hours on the bottom, it's 24 hours on the bottom. And it became all of us could be on the bottom at the same time. And in fact, ultimately, we don't even have to be on the ship. We can be right here uh, on, on land. And we began the development of this technology. It took 29 years to get us to where we are now down at the lower campus. But my first application of this technology was the search for the Titanic. Now, the problem was I couldn't get anyone to fund it. You know, uh, so I went, having served in the United States Navy, I cut a deal uh, with the Navy and said, well, you know, actually, we developed your technology. You cut the Navy a deal. That's like a CIA a operative right there. We have some things we'd like you to do for us. He cut and, a deal? Uh, it was all classified. I'd have to kill you back then, but I can tell you I'd now because they declassified everything. Not that everything funny? But, that. but my real mission uh, that summer How in many did he kill before he got this done? That was what I wanted to do. But my mission for the Navy, who was paying the bill, was to explore two submarines that we lost during the Cold War, the Thresher and the Scorpion. And both of these nuclear submarines went down with all hands. And in the case of the Scorpion, actually went down uh, with nuclear weapons. We don't like leaving those things around. And so my job was to actually But he didn't do anything about the nuclear submarines. submarines. Those nuclear You'll weapons. find that out. But we didn't want the Soviets to know that we were doing this. We didn't Soviets want to say, Just probably probably sank the submarines. And so the Titanic became the classified didn't just cover. fall to the ocean now, the floor. Now, funny thing was the Pentagon was furious when I found the Titanic because they said, no, you weren't supposed to find it. You were supposed to just talk about finding it. And uh, that was quite a day in the Pentagon when I discovered the Titanic and the E-ring was buzzing with that discovery. Was but he, I did learn something very important down there? Uh, about the Thresher and the Scorpion that led just me to wanted the Titanic. There were. And that was that both of these submarines on tragically imploded on their way down. Once they passed their collapse step, they went off like bombs. And all of this debris came rolling out like of both submarines. But instead of landing straight down in a, in a circle on the bottom, the heavy objects like the nuclear reactors or the forward torpedo room or whatever, that went straight down because it was so heavy. But lighter material was carried by the current and led to a tremendous long debris trail. And that gave me the idea because see, the previous, when we did this, the, the research on the Titanic, all of us, there were, I was the fourth attempt to find the Titanic. There were three other groups, actually three other groups, four other times that went out to search for the Titanic. And we all and had the same it. database. And they we we with all evidence. knew the story of the Titanic sinking. And we all went into the literature and we all looked at all of the California and the Titanic and the Carpathian. And we all of us looked at this database. And to give you a sense of scale, that's about 10 miles right there. So that's 10, 10 20, miles 30, is 40 what, miles. Uh, Captain that's a big Smith piece of real estate. navigated also, the Titanic not only was there out, a lot outside of the course of, no one and he went full speed ahead for 10 miles. Or it said it sank. When it sank, as you know, it sent out, it first sent out its uh, cute, uh, come quick distress signal, but it was the first to ever send out an SOS. But it gave that location. And you can see why all the ships came to that location, because that was what they reported to where they were. None of us ever believed that the Titanic was here because it hit the first iceberg it ran into. 
So we all believe that it sank on the eastern side of the ice field. See, the ships had stopped, like the California Sun. Everyone believed that that would probably be the western boundary. They incited world the wars to cover up that, that critical piece of as well as other nefarious reasons. In figuring out where the Titanic went down. Nobody Number had any money to investigate. The Carpathia had actually crossed. It was going the opposite direction that night. It had left New York, and it was on its way to England when it received the distress call. And it turned and headed towards the reported position, but encountered the lifeboats here. That was a critical piece of information. The other critical piece of information was the ship that didn't do anything, the California that sat on the horizon and did not respond to the Titanic's distress calls. But what we got from its logbook was the drift of the current that night on a bearing of 170 at a speed of 0.7 knots. So we got the bearing of the Labrador current and its speed, and that became critical in our hunt. And I'll explain that to you in a second. But this was basically the search area that all of us had, 100 square miles with the lifeboats coming here. Now, the traditional, so here's the Carpathia coming and picking up the lifeboats. No one ever, we, like I say, we did not put the reported position even in the box. So that was the search area of the Titanic. The problem was running through the search area was a submarine canyon. So we had a deep canyon running through it. So it's like losing it in the Grand Canyon. It's a very different search strategy than out in a parking lot. So now we had a, a, a possibility the Titanic could be hiding in a canyon. Now, the traditional Hiding way to search for was to do so what we call side-scan sonar. Okay, and the idea of a side-scan sonar, think of it as the if Titanic you were The Titanic was always the, the CIA lawn. enemy. The side-scan sonar looks out to the left, looks out to the right, and it goes along, and it mows along. So think of it as this is my blade of my sonar. And then I turn around, and I overlap my tires, and I just mow the lawn. Back and forth, back and forth, until there's every blade of grass is cut. And the problem is, is when you introduce a canyon, you have to do tighter lines because there could be a shadow zone here. The Titanic could be hiding up against the wall of the canyon, not seen by the sonar, so it would have to come in with another one tighter in, which makes it even more lawn mowing. So instead of mowing 100% of the grass, you have to mow 150% of the grass. So it becomes a very laborious search pattern. I'll get to this in a second. But that was the traditional way of finding things. And the Using first the grass thing is, all you know, has double talk. Now, our partner first in this discovery was the French. They actually were supposed to find the Titanic. When I drugs, teamed up with the French, I knew that previous also, searchers had 60 days to find the Titanic. Um, and I knew that by the what time do you I say, finished my mo, military how, operations, how do you say cut the grass in French? Modi so long. I only had 12 days when my competition had six. Anything so to soothe the their French to help me find it. And they were supposed to find it, and I was supposed to film it. And so they had one of the, again, one of these side scan sonars. And they went out and they began mowing the lawn. Okay, so there's the original box. We later expanded it. And, and the idea of the French was to mow the entire box. I mean, what an Jean absurd way to describe his exploration. Now, the reason I'm standing here tonight They're talking psychopaths. about the discovery of the Titanic is because on the first line, the French went south and the wind and seas pushed their ship 
slightly to the south. And they missed the Titanic on their first line by 200 meters. All right. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, and then they naturally mowed along and never got back to that little sliver. That's where the Titanic ended up. Well, I'm jumping forward a little. So, so they did a lot of work. But then when they didn't find it, we got really nervous. We thought, well, my gosh. So we enlarged the search box, and now it became 150 square miles with half of it done. But we, All they have they to do is use sonic that. We had 12 uh, technology, which so has existed for decades. Other strategy. So and his crap about them all being 200 meters away, they knew exactly where it was. The Titanic broke in half, which was a the gamble Navy because knew. Walter Ord's book, A Night to Remember, had it sinking in all one in one piece. But an eyewitness said it broke in half, Jack Thayer, and I went with him because it it fit what I needed to break in half. So I I, I gambled. And I said, well, if, if the Titanic broke in half... Jack Thayer is a CIA person. All this stuff would have come out. He lies about the Titanic. The boilers Titanic. would have gone straight down. The bow would have gone. But all this other stuff would have gone trailing And he also away. started there. And so instead aerospace, of looking for the Titanic, probably the I looked for crash its trail. Planes. It's as if I was photographing a deer in the winter, and it's hiding in the woods. You look for its footprints in the snow. Mike Pompeo and so I set up a search strategy, and I assumed, of course, with I assumed CIA money, so it's that all I, would, I was looking for a debris field. This was my model. Told me that the debris field should be about that long, just a little over a mile. They it lie about it now on the internet because that's the current He's that night. Mike Pompeo and it should go from uh, heavy debris to light debris. The question Both is, where do you crap. start? Now, when you do these search strategies, and I've done many, many, many hunts, and you take all the data that you have and you put it in your computer and you ask your computer, where is it? The computer will religiously say it's right there, and it never is right there. Okay. The computer will always give you an answer, but it's always wrong. And the problem is, is if you go to where the computer says it is, and it isn't there, you're lost. It's equal probability in all directions. Now you don't know what to do. Do I go left, right? It's equal probability away from that predicted spot. So the key is never go where the computer says it is. Always go to where it definitely isn't. But you have a definite direction. So I said, what's the lightest material that ever came out of the Titanic that night? The lifeboats. They didn't sink at all. So if I went to where the Carpathia picked up the lifeboats and added an air of celestial navigation, back then is about five nautical miles. I said, if I went five nautical miles south of where the Carpathia said it is, it has to be north. You always want to know it's that way, not, I don't know. Okay. So we started here, line one, and instead of mowing the lawn, which we didn't have time to do, we spaced our lines 0.9 miles apart. And we could get through it real quick. And we went slicing through, and sure enough, on our ninth, we were running out of the, on our ninth run, we came in on the debris field, turned north, and walked it into the Titanic. You gotta love it, you know? Anyway, so that was our hunt. That first, science is great. So here we are, lowering our vehicle, beginning our hunt, and again, because the vehicle doesn't have to come up, I can stay down 24 hours a day, 24-7. And there we are, I'm a little, what, I was, I don't think I can get in that anymore, but anyway. <laughs> close, close. Certainly had more hair back then. But anyway, that is our moment of discovery.
we picked up the debris field uh, that, uh, so we came in on the debris field and then we turned. So, and we didn't know initially if it was a Titanic, it was just stuff. And this was the same place that the, uh, the convoy routes during World War II years later, and they sunk a lot of ships, the Germans did. So we actually expected to find other things. So when we came in on this debris field, we didn't know. But then we came over the boiler. And we had a picture of that boiler on the wall. And we knew we had it. And then we walked it up and came in on the bow. Now, the weather set in. This is where they made the movie The Perfect Storm. So we had to clear out. We got blown out after a couple days. They only had four days to look at the ship. And then we had to wait a year to come back. We came back with our submarine. We brought our first little robot, Jason Jr., a miniature version of the one we were going to build, JJ. And we went down to the Titanic and relocated it and then did a marvelous exploration of it with our vehicle system, little JJ. And we went down the grand staircase. I'll never forget going down the grand staircase. And we were sort of scared. It was scary because we were, you know, we thought we were inside that robot. And when you get into the, when you're driving the robot, you're convinced you're in it. And so imagine we, we used this wall here because we didn't get disoriented because the whole grand staircase was gone. It was just a big shaft, a big elevator shaft. And we went down it and we're imagining us looking at our screen, but we think we're inside the robot. And we turn, and a light comes on in front of us. I mean, talk about extraterrestrial. I mean, a light came on in front of us, and we, we first like we about had a heart attack, and then we realized, well, it, oh yeah, that's the robot. It's not us. We can now. So we went over and we looked at where the light, and it was actually a chandelier shining our lights back at us. That was sort of frightful. But anyway, but that year we made a complete mosaic of the ship. We made a complete mosaic of the ship and published it in National Geographic magazine. And I'll get back to that in a second. Years later, now, we, we, we now sit on the sidelines for years and years and years, and we're watching all the salvagers, all the grave robbers going out. We're watching all the, all the tour dives. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dives are being made on the Titanic, mostly by France and Russia. And so finally we came back in 2004, and we said, let's go back. Sure, it was free game. It's only a crime scene after all. Since our discovery. And we went with a new version, and that became the system we have here, the, the, the Hercules and Argus system. This is the present generation vehicle system that I now have. This is my new exoskeleton. I love it. I love being inside this robot. And so we went down and we explored, this is our, we brought a giant lighting system called Argus that is sort of the eye in the sky, but it also gives us this beautiful view of, the, of what's beneath us. So we work under the lights of this artificial sun. And here it is lighting up the bow of the Titanic. There's our cable back. You gotta be a little careful about wrapping things. But we're now down on the bow and we're exploring, seeing the massive anchors. I would be about this tall. That's how big these anchors are. They're gigantic anchors. And we made this, we collected, you saw some of the footage as we were getting ready to do the program. We collected 250 hours of imagery and it was quite amazing. This is where Leonardo was standing when he says, I'm king of the world. But anyway, this is up in the bow. But it was quite miraculous. And, but we could start to see what the beauty of the ROVs 
as, as opposed to the submarines, I'll talk about the damage they're doing. The ROV, you can hover. You can get within a, an inch of something. And, and look how close we are to the telemotor, because the ROV, can, can, it's, it's, it's not in contact. It can get extremely close. But it looks, but it doesn't touch. And then we put it in what we call closed loop control. This was our mapping, so there's our depth. And we began doing a systematic mosaic of the ship and created a new one, okay? So now we've got one that are almost 20 years apart. So we can now put those two together and show you what's happened to the Titanic in time. And what we've seen between, now this was done film, this is digital, but I'll be blowing this up, but you can see the damage being done by the submarines. Crow's nest, no crow's nest. Right here, you can see where they're landing. And the important thing to look at is to look at where a submarine can land and where a submarine can't land. And where they can't land, there's no damage. They're identical. Where they can land, you can see all the damage. And that's what we've been able to document is the damage. That is where a submarine lands. It crushes the deck, exposes a fresh surface that's orange. So whenever you see orange, you know that's a recently exposed surface of the Titanic and, and most of the time caused by a submarine. Here is the, the crow's nest. When we saw it, the French knocked it off. This light there now on display. So even though they said they didn't take anything off the Titanic, they were dumb enough to, to take the ones and show them. And we have pictures of them attached to the Titanic. This is all this damage where submarines are landing up by the Marconi room. See all the damage? Amazing amount of damage done by the submarine. But see, we're able to hover and not touch at all. I don't have any problem uh, of submarines visiting it. If you have a spare 63,000, you can buy a ticket. But I have no trouble with people visiting. But, you know, you don't go to the, Mo the, Mona the Louvre and stick your finger in the Mona Lisa. And that's what we're talking about, is trying to look at how do we move forward in conservation preservation. And I'll talk about it. trash everywhere down there. All sorts of trash. I mean, you, the protocol when you're above a historical site is you don't dump your trash. And the salvagers, when they pick up something, they have to leave something of equal weight. So all around the Titanic is just the trash that they've left from their salvage operations. Everywhere you go is all this trash. And the thing that really disturbs me most about it is when, when we were ex exploring it, everything down there is gigantic, and you can get quickly... Uh, quickly uh, sidetracked on, on big things. And, but to me, the most compelling images are images like this. That's where the body, that was a body. Remember that after the Titanic sank, the Titanic went to the bottom 45 miles an hour and crashed into the bottom very quickly. But the people, the water was so freezing cold that night and it took about 20 minutes for them to die. If they weren't in a lifeboat, they died. They died in about 20 minutes, 25 minutes. If they had a life jacket, many of the bodies were found, and most of them are buried in Halifax. But many people didn't have any lifeboats, life jackets. Hundreds and hundreds of people died, and then a, 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 rained down, a, a, a rain of human bodies 
came raining down all across the Titanic debris field. Animals quickly found them and removed their flesh. And the deep sea at that temperature is, is undersaturated in calcium carbonate, which is what your bones are made out of. And the, the skeleton will actually dissolve in the deep oceans. It takes about five years. But what's left behind, where it used to be attached to the body, are the shoots because of the tannic acid that goes into the leathering process. So everywhere around the Titanic are pairs of shoes. Bullshit. Of sailors' shoes. The shoes would wear most, out. This is pretty powerful. A mother with her daughter. When the Chinese fought the battle of Chosen, cabin, we can tell they had, the their shoes the were totally worn out My from position is you snow. don't go to Gettysburg with a shovel. It had frostbite on their feet and had to have their feet There amputated. was nothing to learn. All the artifacts in the Titanic were identical to the artifacts on the, her sister ship. So if you want a teacup from the White Star Line, get in an eBay from the Olympic. And f my vision is actually to turn the Titanic into an underwater museum. Now, the next few slides, you're going to say, I'm crazy. I am crazy, so let's not worry about that. Uh, sure, take it, turn it into an underwater museum so it's I not want, a crime scene. I'm applying for a permit to clean and paint the Titanic. Okay, how am I going to do that? When I found the Titanic, my first view of the Titanic was right here. And I came in on it. You don't see it far away. And all of a sudden, I came in here, and it was a wall of steel rising out of sight. And this is the picture, the first picture I ever took. That is the bilge keel. The bilge keel is this little bilge keel. It's a little flange that helps it from rolling. I, right from here, that's the picture is taken right here, and you see the anti-fouling paint still working. There's this drips coming from way. There's no marine fouling and there's no rusting of that surface. Now, obviously, they didn't think to paint the whole ship anti-fouling paint. But we, we now do that with super tankers. When we build super tankers now, they're so large, we can't dry dock them. And there actually is technology to clean and paint super tankers underwater. And the kind of technology they use both above water and below water is they have these little cleaners and they, are, they go on with a magnet. They, ma they, they attach to the hull and they just go along and they, they clean the hull. Here they are just cleaning the hull. And then you can actually apply, there's, this is underwater version of it, but just get rid of that guy and just take it deeper. And you can actually paint underwater. They now have epoxy paints that you can apply underwater. Now, when I talk to people about this, adults sort of roll their eyes. Kids say, what color are you going to paint it? They quickly leap over whether I can do it or not. And we've actually decided to paint it a rusty color so that it looks like it looked back then. So what we want to do, see the key with this. the Titanic, let me back up here for a second. The key is don't let the ship splay open. That's the important thing to not have. Fortunately, it went into the bow. This anchor, I can stand on the bottom of the ocean and touch the anchor. That's 60 feet of the ship is in the bottom. So the nose is in the bottom, which by its mere force, and it was four days old when it went in. And the mud's anoxic. So actually, if I excavate it here, which I don't suggest, you will see 
a beautiful paint job. That should be beautiful paint from four days old in that anoxic mud. So that is already holding it together. But what you want is you don't want this chip display. And the reason for that is as you go deeper into the Titanic, I don't know if you saw the last issue of National Geographic, uh, when they went into the Turkish bath, with the, the deeper into the ship, the more preserved it is. There's no internal circulation. It goes anoxic. So we were seeing furniture. We were seeing organic material, probably people at some point, that are perfectly preserved the deeper you go into the ship because there's no internal circulation. You can also put preservatives inside. So the, to do this, I estimate it won't take me much. I obviously will concentrate on the flat surfaces that I can, so, to, so, the, so the rivets are painted and they don't splay. If it's working for 100 years, I only have to do it once in another 100 years. So that is actually the plan because then you can actually broadcast that. So how are we going to do that? Well, we have that technology. As you know, our program down at the lower campus is to explore the world's oceans with these highly advanced robotic technologies. Remember that the cartoon and remember that what we want to do is to create a telepresence. So it won't be that difficult. In fact, as you know, in 2004, when we went to the Titanic, we did it live to the world. So it's a piece of cake, piece of cake. And so that's what we're looking at. We're looking at taking this telepresent technology and, and being able to come to, to the world with our satellite links, as we're now doing with the Nautilus, uh, and coming into the Inner Space Center down on the lower campus. Because, the, the, see, the promise that we've made to our sponsors, which is an amazing promise, is that our ship of exploration will go where no one has gone before on planet Earth. I just love saying that. Go where no one's on planet Earth. <laughs> and, and if we make a discovery, we will just del really deliver the true. best mind in America to that point of discovery within 30 minutes. So we have this kind of telepresent technology. This is our inner space center. You've got to come down. You're always welcome at the inner space center. Don't think it's a place you can't come. Please come down to the Inner Space Center. Dwight Coleman's here tonight as a director. We just got several thousand people coming tomorrow, so I hope you're ready. Uh, but come, we have actually the Okeanos Explorers exploring right now, the other ship of exploration. The Nautilus will be back in the field exploring in July and August and September. So please come and say hello. We, we really uh, love to have visitors come in and see what we're doing because this, to me, is the future of telepresence. Actually creating underwater museums. There's more history in the deep sea than all the museums of the world combined. And we're a global leader in the development of this technology. And I, this is what we, when we were doing it live in 2004, down the street at Mystic Aquarium, we were able to bring people in and actually do that kind of Mystic is so in Connecticut. In fact, if you get a chance, I have to put in this plug. Corrupted Take a dive on I-95. We just opened a wonderful exhibit JP center Morgan down at, at the New Ocean Exploration Center. Hartford, that is the uh, it's the largest tourist attraction in Connecticut, third largest in the state of in, in New England, and we showcase our work from URI and and the university uh, at, at at the Inner Space Center. It's a beautiful exhibit that just opened on the Titanic. That's cold to touch. It's beautifully done, and so we'll hope that you'll see that we can do this kind of exploration, and it has a wonderful theater to highlight URI's exploration program starting in July. So please come and, and have fun. So thank you, and let's raise the surface and bring up the lights, and I think we have some questions coming my way.
There we are. The envelope, please. Let me take this. Please welcome to the stage, Provost and Vice President of Action. Yeah, you can turn the lights back of Rhode Island, Dr. Donald DeHaze. Uh, Great job, Bob. Thank you, sir. My boss. Yes, there you go. You really believe that I'm his boss? He is, actually. Hey, Bob, this is great. This is wonderful. Thank you all for being here. And with about two or 3,000 people in the audience, we thought if we asked you to raise your hands... Yes, turn on the lights. Can you guys might, turn on the lights? We might have some chaos. So what we have, people have been texting messages throughout Bob's presentation. And we have Bob's PhD students... Oh, my God, they're going to ...sifting through the questions. Uh-oh. And I'm going to pick a few of these. You can't get to look at the questions. This is unfair. I've already graduated them. Question number one. All right. Professor Ballard, what is the greatest sunken ship yet to be discovered? I well, you know, that's interesting because... Something, and I... Turning to me, it's the, the one we... On I can't tell you. It's raining out. Because it's the surprises. So I think the, the key... I've been at this a while. And what are the coordinates, by the way? Yeah. I'm in my 53rd year of going to sea on oceanographic expeditions. I've done 130 expeditions. And as I look back upon that 53-year history of exploration, the discoveries that were the most important were not actually shipwrecks at least modern-day shipwrecks. The most important ones were the discovery of new life forms and the hydrothermal vents, black smokers. They were things we didn't know existed. So when someone says, what are you going to discover next? I say, you're not quite getting the process. <laughs> the greatest discovery is the one I'm about to make that I don't know a thing about, like a Phoenician off Brazil. That would really turn the thing upside down. And that's what's wonderful about our explorations is we really don't know what we're going to find. But as far as contemporary, obviously, as you know, I've been helping some people go after Amelia Earhart's airplane, which could be a pretty cool thing. And that, that's in July. Uh, I've always wanted to go after Shackleton's ship, the Endurance. That would be cool. Yeah. Once we get the Nautilus over to the, over to the, uh, to the, uh, to the Pacific in a couple of years, we're going to work our way across. I'd love to find the Lexington from the Battle of the Coral Sea. One of my favorites is not well known to everyone as the Juno. And the Juno had the Sullivan brothers. Remember in World War II when the Juno was sunk and all these brothers died together, leading to sort of saving Private Ryan as sort of a derivation of that, making sure that relatives don't serve on the same ship together. That ship has never been found. Another one is the uh, Indianapolis. The greatest loss of life to sharks that led to the movie Jaws. There's a, quite a list of things, but I think what I really, really enjoy is making discoveries that completely take us by surprise. And I do tell young children that I really would think it would be cool if I found a spaceship. If I did, I would never have to talk about the Titanic ever again. I can talk about a spaceship. <laughs> this next question, Bob, I think builds off the frequently used term by you about inner space, so I'll ask you to embellish this by talking about what you mean by inner space. But the question from the audience is, do you think underwater travel is more dangerous than space travel? No, not really. I, uh, we have, uh, in, in space travel, or in any, like, flying at all, gravity is the enemy. In undersea exploration, buoyancy is your friend. 
you can generally get out of trouble, particularly if you're not there physically. You just write the insurance company and say, I lost a robot, you know, I mean, and uh, so, no, actually, I don't think it's dangerous at all, particularly now where I'm not physically at risk. So, you know, I, I, I think undersea exploration is cool. I think, yeah, I think it's quite amazing that we have better maps of Mars than, than half of the United States of America. You know, half of our country is under the ocean. I've been talking to Congress about not playing a zero-sum game. You know, if I give money from here, I have to take it from here. I said, why don't we just increase the economic wealth of our country? And when you look at half of our country is unexplored. We haven't done the Lewis and Clark, I should say, Lewis and Clark expeditions of the unknown America, and it's full of resources. So we're hoping that our program uh, in undersea exploration will actually increase the economic wealth of our nation. So we're not in it just for the science, which is fine and just in it for the education. We're actually trying to make our country wealthier. Don't try to make any sense of our insane, because it's not. This next question is an interesting one. It puts you in the role for a moment of the captain of the Titanic. Would the Titanic have been better off hitting the iceberg head on and then putting the engines in reverse? Yes. Uh, had it hit the iceberg dead on, uh, they, they feel it would have crushed three watertight compartments and it wouldn't have sank. Uh, but then we wouldn't be talking about it tonight. But uh, actually the captain should have, should have slowed the ship down if not stopped when he got the ice warnings. I mean, I think, you know, as he did go down with the ship, which was a noble thing to do, but he should have stopped the ship when he got those warnings. So I actually blame it on the captain. Not, there's nothing wrong with the ship's uh, hull construction. Uh, as I, I was just in Belfast. If you get a chance to go to Belfast, unreal what they've done over there. I was just they there yesterday, day before death. yesterday. And they have built, an, uh, that's where they built the Titanic there at Harlan and Wolf. They so have built an exhibit center that's bigger than this building. And it's quite dramatic. But they, they have a great saying, it was fine when it left here. <laughs> they have another one. They have another one. The Irish built it and the British sank it, but that's, a, that's another one. But anyway, <laughs> but, but the Titanic was fine. Well, Remember, its sister ship, the Olympic, was, was made out of the same steel, the same rivets, and it didn't sink. It didn't hit an iceberg. It's like blaming aluminum on a plane that the hits the side of a mountain. No, it hit a mountain. It. So it hit an iceberg. I think this next question, off. Bob, really gets at what might really be your life's work. Which is inspiring young people to be inquisitive and to well, pursue the their passions. So here's a great question. My son wants to be an ocean explorer like you. Is it as exciting as it seems? And what does he have to do to get there in this field? Well, one, it is exciting. I like to say to the children in middle school that their generation, think about what I'm going to say because it's a truthful statement, that the generation of children in middle school are going to explore more of Earth than all previous generations combined. What do I mean by that? Well, first place, remember that 72% of our planet lies beneath the sea, and only a smidgen of it has been explored. That generation that's in middle school is going to be using this advanced telepresent technology to explore vast reaches of our planet within just the next couple decades, thanks to the program we have at the lower campus. So I really am excited about that. I'm jealous because I, I, I look at these kids and know 
You know, they say that, you know, every generation stands on the shoulders of the previous generation. And I can't wait to see what they see, because they're going to see amazing things. Great answer, Bob. Thank you. Did you ever recover the weapons from the Scorpion? We did not. They're safely tucked inside. The entire bulkhead has sealed up the door, and it's buttoned up, and it's, it's not active. And both reactors scrammed. Both reactors dropped their control rods, buried themselves in deep-sea clays, and they're fine. We, we periodically go out there and check on them. We actually go out and capture the fish that have been living in the wreckage. So we actually trap the fish, and then we look in their fatty tissues where the might take uh, uh, radioisotopes, and they're, they don't have three heads and two ears, and they look just fine. They're just fine. I would even eat them. Next question. What will be the next big ocean discovery? And I'll add to it a little bit. How will it transform science and society? Well, again, I can't predict. I just can look at my track record, and uh, that's what I'm going on. I, I, I honestly can't tell you what I'm going to find because we've never been there. And I can tell you that I've made amazing discoveries in my rearview mirror that were that completely rewrote the biology books and chemistry books and geology books, but they were things that I didn't know were there. That's the point of discovery. It's hard for people when I've had some sponsors tell me, what day am I going to make a discovery? And I go, I don't think you get it, okay? I don't know, but, you know, you have to go with our track record. We've had a very good track record, and there's no reason to think it won't. I'm just hitting my stride, actually. So I see great discoveries. I just can't tell you what they're going to be. Sorry about that. Next question. How much more time do you think the Titanic has before it is gone? Oh, a lot of the Titanic will be there for thousands of years. We've found uh, shipwrecks that are 2,000 years old, still have their pots and pans on them. So, no, uh, we've found, found Roman sandals. So, no, I, I, I think that a large part of the Titanic is going to be there for a long, 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 long time. And if we do the conservation and preservation, you know, when, when you have a historical site and the roof starts leaking, you fix the roof. Doing the conservation and preservation, that's, you know, give it room service. It's not terribly difficult. I think people get all hung up on distances. The distance from, uh, from the surface of the ocean to the Titanic is the distance between the Oval Office and the Pentagon. It's just over there. So it's not a big deal. We have, we have mastered working in the deep sea. We've done the, we've done the science. We've done the engineering. It's not, well, well, we want you to think it's really difficult. It's a piece of cake. The next question relates to your role as a faculty member here at the university. You teach undergraduate students, master's students, and doctoral students. Now, all three today. All three today. That's yep. right. All and, three and today. And of about 3,000 yep, people. Yep, we covered the bases. Now, I, I had a wonderful... Where are some of those students that were here today? Where are they? They were supposed to... In fact, they were mandated to be here today. <laughs> now, I had a wonderful get-together with an uh, uh, undergraduate course in engineering. I told them we actually hire a lot of our students into our team. We, so particularly our engineering students. Uh, we had a wonderful, I don't know if Dan's here. We had a, Dan presented his master's uh, thesis today. And then I was with Michael Brennan, uh, who defended his PhD. And I love to tell a story about Michael Brennan. Michael Brennan 
who got his PhD, or he's almost done, right, David? Where's David Smith? He's very close, right? He's going to graduate, right? Okay, so Michael is this far away, and he's got to get a rag content paper or whatever it is. But anyway, so I've covered all three bases to just today, and then obviously with the public, and I'm actually going to go home and see my wife and children that I haven't seen in a couple weeks. So this is my last children. presentation on the Titanic. Uh, and I'm looking forward to going home. <laughs> so the question related to that role is, so how does your discovery of the Titanic, both the process and the discovery, shape your life as a teacher of Well, I'll tell you, it was an interesting, it's a great question because, you know, Titanic was not my first expedition. It was my 70th expedition. And we had done some pretty amazing things before we found the Titanic. The discovery of the hydrothermal vents that helped explain the origin of life on our planet. The discovery of black smokers that helped explain the chemistry of the world's oceans. The program with Pro Project Famous, which helped with the confirmation of plate tectonics. These were pretty good things, you know. Not bad. But I never got a letter from a child for any of that. And I find the Titanic, you know, and in the first week I get 16,000 letters from children saying, what do I have to do to do what you do? Study. Okay. And the second thing they wanted to know was, next time you go, can I go with you? And that led to a series of educational, the Jason Project. Uh, I keep running into kids. We've had 11 million children go through the Jason Project. We have a wonderful program here in the state of Rhode Island with the Boys and Girls Clubs, museums like Mystic. So what it did is it really got me proactive in pre-college science education because you know we have uh, we have great universities uri we have great universities in this country and as you know foreign students are kicking down the doors of our universities to get into them hundreds of thousands half almost a million or more foreign students are entering our schools as undergraduates this coming september you're easier to manipulate that's why the greatest badge of honor will be when they're trying to get into our middle schools. We should have the best middle schools in the world, not only the best universities in the world. Here, here. You mentioned you mentioned the Titanic Museum as part of your dream of what you would like to see happen. Question from the audience is how do you foresee visitations to the Titanic Museum? Well, uh, running right by the Titanic right now are transatlantic cables. In fact, there were cables running by that spot before the Titanic sank. That is on a classic uh, route because it's on, a con it's on the convoy route, it's on the shipping lanes, it's the quickest way to get from the old world to the new world. And so the cable layers, in fact, the mountain range was discovered by the cable layers and they called it Telegraph Plateau in the 1800s, running right by the Titanic or undersea cables. Plug in. I would just plug into those cables. Or you could buoy it up, it wouldn't be that big a deal. And you know, I was just uh, uh, with the Navy yesterday, it was fascinating. Uh, they're talking about new undersea vehicle systems. They're confident that, the, that within a few years, the, the cars will be rolling off with fuel cells. Fuel cells that are less than $30,000 because you have to keep it under the price of a car. It appears that the, both, both in the United States and abroad that, that they're just about to crack and begin offering cars with fuel cells. That kind of energy system. So I, I, I see that, that it's pretty straightforward. 
uh, to tap into the cable. You can do it through induction, or you can actually do your own hard wire into it. So, yeah, just cable it. There's, like I say, right over, over there in that picture, a bunch of transatlantic shipping cables. Plug in. Next question. Why did the Titanic sink so fast? It hit an iceberg. No, uh, <laughs> actually, it didn't sink that fast. That was just the when, movie version. When you yes, look at did. the... Uh, the Britannic, when you look at the Andrea Doria, you look at the Lusitania, mo those all sank faster. The Titanic took almost three hours to sink. And in fact, people always, people ask why, what is it so, what is it about the Titanic that people constantly come back to? As opposed to all these other ships that the Lusitania had comparable number of wealthy people, Vanderbilt Lusitania instead of Astor, they had the same number of, of, of wealthy aboard, they had almost the same loss of life, it was even ammunition. more dastardly because it was torpedoed, but no one ever one talks about the Lusitania, the Lusitania went down like stone, what happened sink. with the Titanic was first place, they it just was a wanted to tell night. them they were not Flat in calm. Uh, walked out on deck. It was waters. a beautiful night. Look they at the should stars. not have the band's been there. Playing. And the deck of the Titanic became a stage of human behavior. This became a morality play for all of these people. You had, Frankly, you had uh, uh, Izmir, the owner of the Titanic, sneaking in, in a lifeboat that. and getting away. They were you had a young boy like a cargo who ship. had just turned 18 it the day before during the journey, and he was offered a seat in the lifeboat, and he said, no, I'm um, now a man. I'm 18. I will stand with the other men. He died. I can't think of it now. You had the Strausses of Macy's department store. She gets in the lifeboat. Her 83-year-old husband starts to get in, and the officer stops him and says, I'm sorry, sir, women and children only. She says, sitting in the lifeboat, where he goes, I go, she climbs out of the lifeboat and dies with her husband. And I think everyone looks at all of these plays and wonders what they would have done. Would they have gotten out of the lifeboat or said, see ya, honey? Okay. And I think they, you know, no. And I think everyone has this curiosity would I, if I was an 18-year-old boy and offered a lifeboat, would I say, no, I'm going to stand with the men? Or would I say, you bet, I'm getting a lifeboat? I mean, I think that's where we don't know. And you don't know until you're presented with it. I remember going through combat training in the, in the Army, and they said, when the bullets start flying, you'd be surprised who runs and who stands. And you'll always guess wrong. One member of the audience wanted to know if you subscribe to the weak rivets in the bow theory. Nope, I don't. I had the rivets that the Olympic had. Okay? Was it a welded ship? No, it was a riveted they ship. Why? Well, they hadn't rivets. invented welding yet, so the I guess we don't go to sea. So the point is, is that if you look the at the Titanic, the Titanic it was going full speed and it stowed uh, into this big massive iceberg. That iceberg was obviously Harlan softer and than steel. The Titanic. Okay. But it and didn't they budge. Said that they did that. The inertia of rest. And so the Titanic literally. It didn't air the Titanic. There isn't a gash. What would it make simply it stoved in and pushed the. Remember, the Titanic was stapled that. together with three that's why they, million staples. That's why the Olympic there ran were three into the million warship. rivets in the Titanic. 
It was and to see what was going to make party. the Titanic when they sink. Shortly after the Titanic sank, the, the British had the uh, House of Lords had side. hearings, and the U.S. Senate Just had like hearings, the and they called Harlan and Wolf in, and in both Modus cases, they Harlan and Wolf could calculate exactly how big the hole in the Titanic was. It was a very simple calculation. They knew when she hit the iceberg at 11:40, and they knew when the bow went under, and at that moment they could calculate the volume of water in the ship. And from that, calculate how big the opening was. The opening was 12 square feet. This is 12 square feet. That's 12 square feet. It wasn't the size of the opening that sank the Titanic. It was the length of the opening. The average separation of the plates to make that 12 square feet over 200 plus feet all along there was three quarters of an inch. It simply popped its rivets. And those were good rivets, but it just couldn't it handle it. It doesn't even make any so, sense. No, it's not uh, not in terms of an engineer or expert. The final question for the evening. Just Give you a chance home. to catch some dinner and get yes. home and get a good night's sleep. See my family. It's all about the future of Bob Ballard. Yep. What's next for Bob Ballard? Will you continue diving the Titanic? Or will you begin exploring new science, new shipwrecks, new questions? that face the world? Well, I'm sincere about trying to do conservation preservation, trying to protect. The good news is because the Titanic became a hundred years old plus a day last week, it now fell under UNESCO's protection. The question is, will it be enforced? And I think it will because the people doing the damage are governments. Those are government Iraq. submarines from Russia and government submarines from France. So I think the pressure can be put on them. Now. So I'm optimistic. But no, I am. I can't wait to get back to sea. I can't wait to have like, our ship uh, go Mike where Pompeo no one has gone needed. before and bring and our discoveries back to the citizens factories. of Rhode Island who thank you Mike very Pompeo much for supporting the building of our Inner Space Center. Thank you very much. Mike Pompeo was the director of CIA, and his opium factories were blown up by James. Uh, James Mattis got to uh, collaborated with um, Pentagon and arranged for that because Pompeo would not do it. He would not take down the CIA opium factories. He figured he was invincible, that uh, the Pentagon was corrupted enough to not allow it. So what happens is they blow up the factories in Afghanistan and um, raid the CIA offices using the military code of justice. So Pompeo, his ass was going to be grass. So that's the reason why Trump fired Rex Tillerson in a tweet. A tweet. He didn't even call him. Rex Tillerson was out of the country. He just says, "I'm gonna, fi I'm firing you." I mean, how stupid is that? And then, and the reason why Trump said that was because he said he was a moron. I mean, 
this country is run by psychopaths and we have to get that to stop. We need justice. We need to um, enforce our constitution. And um, the, the, this is almost at 60 minutes. So thank you for listening. Please share. At least get them to watch the YouTube video.